Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 124. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. typically have um, osteomalacia with vitamin D deficiency, but overall deficiency is also associated with cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes, Um, autoimmune diseases, depression, multiple sclerosis, uh, tuberculosis. We can kind of cover some of those later, but that's kind of really just the overview and it acts as as a hormone in our body. Welcome, welcome veggie lovers and welcome to the first episode of the Nutrients of Concern series. So I decided to focus on nutrients this month because it's one of the most common questions I get, one of the most common concerns that people have when they're transitioning to a plant-based diet or when they want to transition their children to a plant-based diet. So I decided let's get some experts on the show to talk about these nutrients. Now this episode is going to open up with vitamin D. So it's probably more than you ever wanted to know about vitamin D because I am speaking with an expert who is way brilliant, way smart, and knows a lot about vitamin D research, vitamin vitamin D metabolism. Some of the questions that we still have about, about vitamin D and how much we probably should be supplementing and what the relationship is between vitamin D and the coronavirus and coronavirus infection. So I know that you're going to love all of the things we talk about, and hopefully you will feel better informed about vitamin D, vitamin D deficiency, vitamin D supplementation, and all of that. And our guest today is Dr. Frank Cusimano. I'll tell you more about him in just a minute, but before we get to that, Reminder of all the freebies I have, dryami.com forward slash free, so that you can learn more about replacing meat, replacing dairy, ideas for breakfast, lunch, and eating out, and a plant-based shopping list, and continue to add more goodies to that list. So dryami.com forward slash free, you can download one, you can download them all. 
And thank you to all of you who have been reaching out to me to tell me how much you really have enjoyed reading my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Thank you so much for your feedback. Thank you so much for sharing it with your patients, with your family members, with your friends. I really appreciate that. And I also really appreciate an Amazon review. It means a lot to me. So thank you so much for taking the time in your day to do that. Again, my book is called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. It's not, the focus of the book is not plant-based nutrition. The focus of the book is actually how to feed our kids. Because I think a lot of us know what to feed our children. We know about whole foods. We know about plant foods. But one of the things we may not know about is intuitive eating and how children are born intuitive eaters. And when we start interfering with that natural intuition, with that natural knowing that they have of when to eat, when to stop, then we start altering their path and things end up a little bit different than we expected, especially adding to it stress and anxiety and battles at the dinner table, which I want you to be relaxed and have fun feeding yourself and feeding your family. So if you feel like you need more information about that, whether you're pregnant, whether you have a little infant, a toddler, up to a teenager or even yourself. I've had people read this book that don't have children themselves, but still found it beneficial to understand these concepts. Then I recommend you pick up a copy available on all online booksellers, anywhere that you can buy books online. It is in paperback, audiobook, and ebook. So thank you so much. It's called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Okay, so Dr. Frank Cusimano, he is a really cool guy. So he already has a PhD in nutrition and metabolic biology, but he's also currently in medical school. So when he graduates, he's going to be a DO PhD. He's got a couple of masters. He's got all kinds of degrees. And he's the kind of guy that is passionate about learning and about research, getting the details right. He knows a lot. So it was really a pleasure and a joy to interview him on Veggie Doctor Radio because we really got into the details. He's also a podcast host himself. His podcast is called Surviving Medicine, and he has a website of the same name where he blogs. So he's that. He's also an athlete and all around a smart guy. He's a bacteria and microbiome expert, all kinds of cool and fascinating things about Dr. Cusimano. And like I said before in this episode, it's all about vitamin D, what it is, why it's important, where it comes from, how much we need, and what deficiency means. So we define all of that. And then we talk about the relationship between vitamin D and chronic disease, but also what we need to know about vitamin D and COVID-19. So this kicks off our series on nutrients of concern. Next week, we'll be talking about calcium and bone health. And then the week after that, we'll be hearing from Dr. Gemma Newman about a lot of the other nutrients. So B12, iron, 
omega-3, selenium, zinc, all kinds of other things. So this month, I hope that you feel that you will be well-informed about what you as a plant-based eater or predominantly plant-based eater should be considering whenever you're eating this way. What else should we be thinking about? So thank you so much for joining us today. Just a final reminder that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. It is not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment. So if you have any concerns about you or your child's eating, nutrition, or growth, please consult a health professional. Thank you so much for listening. And now on to the episode. Dr. Frank Cusimano, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Thank you. Thank you for having me as one of your guests. I love what you what you believe in, and I love the, what you are doing, spreading the um, information about vegetables and the power of diet and nutrition. So I'm excited to be Absolutely. here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, this is going to be so much fun, and I think I'm going to really enjoy this because, as you told me before we started recording, you like to nerd out. Your PhD, you have two masters, getting your medical degree. So this is going to be really, really great. But before we get into the nitty gritty about vitamin D, tell me about your nutrition background. Mm-hmm. What do you know about nutrition and why why are you even interested in it? So I started becoming interested in nutrition all the way back in about 2006. Um, I was you know, playing sports. I was an athlete when I was younger. I was playing sports. And for me, nutrition was kind of the way that I could get a competitive edge. It was it was a way that I could either, you know, change my body weight or use it to maximize efficiency, whether I was recovering from football or soccer, or whether I was trying to do more endurance sports, trying to, to maximize my recovery so that I can compete every single day or that I can, you know, continue to train on a daily basis. So for me, it's kind of been a, an evolution and a journey ever since 2006. And since that time, you know, I started with just thinking, you know, medicine was right. And then I went down the science route of going just, you know, I just want to be a scientist. And now I'm finding that I'm kind of in the middle where I like to do the bench research. And I really like to take research um, from nutrition or the microbiome, do the actual research, but then figure out ways to translate it to human health and translate it to the clinic and translate it to patients. Because at the end of the day, there is a lot of science that is not applicable to necessarily patient care, but it educates us and teaches us how to better utilize these things in our understanding of human health. And so for me, it's kind of the that mix. And I've been kind of studying nutrition on and off since then. But my my background has been in a lot of the the liver and the gut and core nutrition. So I've, you know, I've published papers on carnitine metabolism to um, certain drugs and how they affect the um, enteric nervous system, how they affect the GI system, how they affect the, the liver, um, and then also uh, studied how different medications, different viruses in the gut affect human health. So that's kind of my wheelhouse, but uh, anything in nutrition is is kind of where I'm excited to discuss with you today. Wow. Well, that's super fascinating. And I can see that you're really passionate and interested about it, but it's really cool how it kind of started from a personal journey your athletics and improving your performance? And do you feel like you have a little biohacking in you too? Like, do you like to experiment with yourself? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So for for your listeners, I'm sure that they've all heard the word biohacking. I am a huge, I'm not a fan of the, the term biohacking, but the idea of it, I think is is crucial. I think that there's some misunderstanding about what it, what biohacking means. But uh, on the idea of what we can do on a nutritional level, I think is fundamental to human health. And I think that there's there's just common 
phrase that a lot of people hear and it's a Hippocrates phrase and that is let food be thy medicine and to me that doesn't necessarily ring true because I don't necessarily know food is going to be medicine for you but what I think nutrition and what food can do is it's prevention it mm-hmm. is allowing you to optimize your health to feel better on a daily basis and to maybe prevent some of the, the more chronic diseases and reverse them um, in several instances that you know diet and nutrition have been helped to reverse multiple different chronic diseases. And so for me, nutrition on a daily basis just I think is so crucial. And I think as physicians and health professionals, whether it's a PA or an NP or even a registered dietitian starts to learn more about nutrition, they're able to utilize it and really help patients using a different tool set that they didn't necessarily have, you know, in their tool belt when they got out of school. Cool. Well, what's been the craziest thing you've tried on yourself? Oh, I've probably tried everything on myself. And I would say at the very beginning, um, I tried probably things that I think are detrimental now and things that I wouldn't recommend to anybody. But, you know, at the beginning, I started to realize that through diet and nutrition, I could change my weight quite drastically. And weight, obviously, for weight loss is a big issue for a lot of people, but people don't realize that you can also change your nutrition to put on weight purposely. You know, weightlifters do that. Football players do that. There's a lot of people um, in athletics that purposely do modulate their weight based off their diet. And I, I, you know, at one point, a period of time, I was drinking all sorts of cow's milk and peanut butter and purposely and protein shakes, trying to get my body to a weight that I wanted to it. And I, I think maybe in the end, I was doing more damage than and good. But now I'm, I've started to learn that, you know, through your macronutrient counting and optimizing certain other things, you can use healthy food to then replace that. So for me, the biggest thing I think that most people don't understand is fluctuating your weight on a daily basis or on a weekly basis is actually kind of fun to do when you, when you've learned how to modulate it. So I think that that's probably the most interesting thing that, you know, people talk about, but not necessarily people have experienced. The only examples that they have probably are some actors, um, that they see, you know, one one movie they weigh 200 pounds and the next movie they see them and they weigh 150 pounds. But actually being able to do that yourself and, you know, in a couple of years, I've gone from 180 to 200 to 142 pounds. Um, and I can I can fluctuate that pretty drastically, drastically. And it's probably not a healthy thing, but it's something that I've done in the past that I think a lot of people have been interested in when I've just sit down and discussed it. Wow, that's super fascinating. It's like you have a little dial on your weight control there. So what is your PhD in and what do you feel like if you had to pick one area that you're most passionate about, what would it be? So my PhD is in nutrition and metabolic biology. Um, a little a side note on, on nutrition research is nutrition research is not necessarily what people think it is. Um, it's not necessarily, you know, counting macronutrients and going to the doctor and being told, oh, your B12 is low. Most nutrition research is actually for fundamental bio- biology of what is you know, vitamin D or vitamin A due to this type of cell or this type of, you know, specific part of the body. So for my research, I was primarily for my PhD research is I was doing microbiome research and how we could use bacteria in our gut to change our GI system. And what we would do is we would take bacteria, we would, you know, modulate them in a way to produce specific molecules, compounds, or nutrients, and then would give them two different, you know, in, in, in an experimental model to see if we could find an effect similar to taking a drug, right? Instead of taking, you know, a pill, can we get a bacteria to produce that compound that we want it to do? You can mm-hmm. take the pill, uh, you know, carry, you can take the bacteria, the probiotic periodically, it would produce a chemical 
that is the same as taking a medication on a daily basis. So that's really where my PhD work was was into. But my PhD was in a nutrition program that is actually housed within a school of medicine. And while that sounds normal, there's only one PhD nutrition program in the entire country that is housed within a school of medicine. Most PhD nutrition programs are actually just biology departments. And the majority of the faculty are people that have biology backgrounds. Whereas in my program, 52% of our faculty were, you know, MDs or medical professionals. So we, we got a real close look of what diet and what nutrition we're doing to people in the clinic and people in the hospital. Wow. That's so cool. I didn't even know you could do that. That's really interesting. And so now you are going to be getting your medical degree. Do you know yet what you would like to specialize in or focus on when you're done? Cause you're going to be MD PhD and have so much knowledge. Yeah. So I really want to probably go into GI and I've, I think I've known that since before I did the PhD in nutrition um, with the idea of nutrition being kind of, I think the fundamental of gastroenterology and there's really no PhD or, you know, PhD focused nutrition researchers um, in the field of GI. There's really no mm. experts like that. There's only people that have read up who have really started to study it now, but no one that learned it in their training. They always learn it after the fact. And so for me, that's kind of the area that I want to go down, but I want to be able to use it more from the microbiome level because, for example, we'll talk a little bit about vitamin D and there's some vitamin D research on the microbiome, but I think that the understanding the role of the bacteria in our stomach and how it affects, you know, B12, vitamin C or calcium, vitamin D, kind of all of them, I think is way more important and something that we don't know nearly enough about. And there's not enough researchers research. Oh, very intriguing. Well, let's get into it then. Let's mm -hmm. talk about vitamin D. What is vitamin D and why is it important? Why do we need it? So vitamin D is actually one of my, one of my favorite uh, vitamins to, to discuss. And it's because it's, it's not only is it a fat-soluble vitamin that we can eat, but it's also something that our body makes. Um, it's a secosteroid hormone, which is something that really just means our body can make it and absorb it. And it really acts more as a hormone. Um, it's crucial in maintaining bone integrity and parasite differentiation, regulating calcium, phosphorus, magnesium, um, the parathyroid, as you know, and also the maturation of the um, different immune cells. Now, one of the, beauty, the beautiful things about vitamin D is there's a lot of clinical implications of it and things that we think about, but a lot of things that we don't necessarily know too much about. Um, for example, vitamin D kind of has, it really supports the respiratory system. Um, which is something that we're now finding to be really important with asthma and people with upper respiratory infections. But it also modulates the, the immune system and gives our, our body the tools to not only fight infections, but to produce immunity to infections long term. Um, so that's really what vitamin D is. There's different forms of it. Um, but some of the things that we can think about with vitamin D are too much vitamin D or high levels. And what does it do to us? And then also deficiencies. So there's some interesting data saying that people that have really high vitamin D levels, and that's at, you know, a, between 45 and 60 um, nanomoles per liter. And we'll, we'll go through some of the dosing later, but um, they're finding that they actually have decreased risk of cardiovascular disease and, and cancer mortality, which I think is, is really interesting. And then the other thing that we think about with vitamin D is people that are deficient. Mm -hmm. And people that are deficient with kids that are deficient in vitamin D, they have either osteomalacia or they have rickets. And then adults typically have um, osteomalacia with vitamin D deficiency. But overall, deficiency is also associated with cancer and cardiovascular disease and diabetes. 
um, autoimmune diseases, depression, multiple sclerosis, uh, tuberculosis. We can kind of cover some of those later, but that's kind of really just the overview. And it acts as a, as a hormone in our body and it produces just a number of effects. And we can talk about those effects, but that's kind of just the overview. I don't want to go too much into the weeds on, yeah. on what vitamin D is. And I feel like when it comes to parents, what we usually hear about vitamin D is vitamin D milk. So basically cow's milk that has had vitamin D put into it. So fortified cow's milk with vitamin D and then how it's important for our bone health. But I think less people know that it's really important for our immune system as well. Mm. And that, yeah, there may be all of these other conditions that from what it seems to me being at my level of understanding, which is not at your level, is that some of it we're confused about the chicken or the egg, right? Like, is it that we get a chronic condition and then it depletes our vitamin D or that having deficient vitamin D increases our risk of those conditions? So I definitely want to go into that a little bit more. Um, as far as where we get our vitamin D. You talked about how we can produce it in our skin, but the majority of people in the United States, are we getting it from the sun or are we getting it from our food? And if we're getting it from food, what foods are we typically getting vitamin D from? So older, older data, I mean, this is a great question. This really hits at the core of it. But the, the older data showed that about 90% of the vitamin D in our body was actually that stuff that we we made or reproduced from our skin. Now that was the older data when people were spending more time outdoors and when people were had less vitamin D deficiency. So I don't know if that data holds true to today. I haven't seen, you know, reliable data that I'm convinced about right now. But they had said about 90% of it was produced by our skin. Um now when it is produced by our skin it's in the form of D3. That's not the active active form of vitamin of vitamin D. Um, but there's two forms that most people think about when they go to the shelf, right? When they go to a supermarket and they're like, I'm going to need to buy a vitamin D supplement, which one is? It? They see v vitamin D2 and D3. D2 is actually the ergocalciferol um, form, and that's typically found in plants. It's a little less bioavailable. It maybe has a slower conversion to the active form. Um, but then there's also the D3 form, which is more of the, the um, supplement form that most people take. And it's also the kind, the D3 is the one that our body makes. And it's also the one that's found in things like cod oil or it's found in fish, fatty, fatty fish or egg. Um, it's typically what you find in fortified cereals or milks. Um, both plant-based versions and regular dairy versions of, of milk are typically fortified with vitamin D3. And that's what our body uses then to convert it to the active form of uh calcidiol or, or calcitriol and that's the 125 dihydroxy vitamin d which is like the act active form in our body okay and so whenever we're getting it from animals we're typically getting it from fish and eggs and so then they can get these animal derived ones and make the d3 vitamin but the d2 is coming from plants and one of the only forms I know of is mushrooms that have been mm -hmm. exposed to UV light. Are there any other plant forms of vitamin D? D2? Correct. Yeah, there's there's a bunch. There's a bunch of forms of, of D2 in different plants. Soy, there's um, mushrooms, just to name a two. But just because you buy a vitamin D3 supplement, you know, at the store to supplement with vitamin D3, it doesn't necessarily mean that it came from animals. 
Okay. And so that's the interesting thing is there are some sub and it, you kind of have to check each brand and most people won't ever even be able to find it because you would have to talk to the manufacturer. But most, yeah. most of the time with a lot of these supplements, especially vitamin D3 is what they can do is actually they can get it synthesized. Um, kind of what we would say it, where it doesn't have anything to do with an animal at all. It's more of a Petri dish form of D3. It's mm. still active. It's still the same form that our body makes, but they can use yeast or bacteria to produce it isolated at high amount you know produce it same that you would produce um like self-culture meat or the same way that you would produce um insulin or the same way that you'd produce a lot of these medications sometimes they can get yeast or bacteria to produce them and then isolate it out and then put it in pill form so there is definitely high amounts of d3 and like cod, cod liver supplements or cod oil supplements but just because you buy a d3 vitamin doesn't mean necessarily it came from an animal source that oh, okay Okay, that's good to know because I know that what I've heard in the past is if you want to make sure that it is a vegan source that you would stick to the D2, but you're saying that some D3s are probably also vegan, but you may not be able to tell yourself by looking at the bottle. Correct. Yeah, you may you may really not be able to tell. And so for, for some people, maybe the D2 form is, and we can go through different tips about how to recommend to people to maybe increase their natural production. There are ways to increase your natural production that we can kind of discuss. Um, but just, just know that if your doctor has you supplementing, um, D3 is probably what most doctors recommend, um, that, that I hear are the ones that I've worked with. You, you know, probably more than, than I do, but, um, there are, you know, vegan forms of D3 out there that a lot mm -hmm. of people do take. Okay, great. Well, let's go a step back and talk about deficiency because I feel I live in Washington state. So, you know, we already kind of have higher risk here because of our latitude and half of the year, we just literally are not getting enough sunlight. So I really feel like to me, it seems like everybody's deficient and I don't test my pediatric population as much, but what I see is their values coming back from subspecialists. So they go see sleep medicine or they go see GI or they go see whoever. And a lot of the subspecialists are regularly testing. And I swear to you, at least nine out of 10 times, they're deficient. So I'm like, well, everybody's deficient. So pretty much I have all of my patients on supplements, especially my breastfed babies from birth. But why, why is there such a large prevalence of vitamin D deficiency, or at least it seems like to me. So there's, I mean, this comes from a lot of reasons and we didn't discuss how our body makes vitamin D, but let me touch on that real fast. And then we'll kind of go into that question. Sure. Um, in your, in your body, your body makes vitamin D and it starts at, actually at your skin. It starts at your levels of your skin where it takes seven hydroxy, um, cholesterol and it converts it into D3. That D3, like I said earlier, is not active. That then gets converted in your liver to a different form, 25-hydroxy um, vitamin D. And then that gets moved to the kidneys, and in the kidneys, it's converted to the active form, 125-dihydroxy vitamin D3. And so you see you have this multiple layers of you know complexity of vitamin D. You have first the skin, and then you have the liver, and then you have the kidney, and it has to circulate you know, in your blood system and be moved around, and these metabolites have to be produced. And so you can see how any issue in your skin, any issue in your liver, any issue in your kidney can cause a deficiency way before maybe you have an issue in one of those organs. People mm -hmm. with early stage kidney disease may have deficiencies in vitamin D. And so you're starting to see these because 
there's just a, such a complexity to it. So it really is kind of a systemic synthesis process that people don't necessarily think about. So why is there such a large prevalence of vitamin D deficiency? So I kind of break this up. Typically, when I talk about it, I break it up into multiple areas. And I'll kind of list them out. And we can discuss each one if you're interested. But there, there's typically more of the overview of it. It's probably better um, just to start with. One is typically dietary intake or malabsorption. Most people are either aren't consuming enough or they're not absorbing enough. People with specific conditions like small bowel issues or inflammatory bowel disease, you know, liver issues, or maybe they have celiac disease, or they're just not eating enough. That's typically what we see from there. The second, second cause typically is decreased sun exposure. Most of us spend more time indoors. And although latitude does play a big, a big role, most of us aren't outside for 15 minutes or 30 minutes at a time. Whereas, you know, a Caucasian, you know, female or male, someone with white skin can walk outside and get start to get conversion of D3 in 15 minutes. Someone with darker pigmented skin, right, whether it's a minority or African-American, the melanin in their body actually blocks the UVB, which makes D3. And so for them, it may take 45 minutes to be in the sun to start to get D3 uh, synthesis. And so these numbers and these, the amount of time you have to spend in the sun really does affect it when you look at how, many, how little time people really do spend in the, time in, you know, in the sun nowadays, especially in the winter months or in the later parts of the year um, or in the early parts of the year. And so, yeah. and I'll add too that for us females, especially as we get into adulthood, we're trying to protect our skin on purpose because right. we know that increased sun exposure leads to wrinkles and nobody wants that. So, I mean, I have my, my zinc oxide, everything on my face and I wear protective clothing in order not to get too much sun. So I don't think I'm getting that much at all from the sunlight. Well, here's, here's actually two recommendations. So one is just an interesting thing that I think is fascinating. So SPF 15, right? SPF 15 Although you're like, okay, maybe I'll get vitamin D by doing a very low amount, by a low SPF. SPF 15 actually reduces vitamin D synthesis by 99%. Wow. So it doesn't take very much to stop the synthesis of vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. But here's a recommendation to all of our listeners. And if you have skin cancer, I would not listen to this recommendation. Follow <laughs> the recommendation of your doctor, first and foremost. But there are some, some groups that are recommending this. Most sunscreens actually take 15 to 20 minutes to start working. So what they recommend is instead of putting sunscreen on, you know, half an hour before you go outside, putting it on right before you go outside, go outside then. And then for that first 15, 20 minutes before the sunscreen starts working, your body is able to start producing vitamin D3. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of getting the benefits of both. Your body is starting to produce vitamin D3 that first 15, 20 minutes you're outside. And then the sunscreen starts to kick in and starts to work. So that typically is what, what I hear is recommended. Um, that isn't publicized very heavily, but it's a great recommendation for people that A, care about skin cancer, care about the wrinkles in their skin, but also want to get vitamin D um, synthesis from their skin. Yeah. I wonder though, if there's a difference between the chemical-based sunscreens and the mineral or physical sunscreens, because I'm assuming that the physical sunscreens start to work immediately. No? That's what, that's what I would suspect. These are from recommendations that I don't think they isolated it out. Um, so I think that that's a great question and something that I think needs to obviously be looked at or really decided, but I don't know if I have a good answer of which yeah. is the, which is the right one. But I like that tip. I think that's good because it's almost like you're putting your, 
your sunscreen on a timer. You're like, I know I don't want to get too much sun. I don't want to get sunburned, but I can get the benefits of getting some vitamin D conversion or, you know, absorbing some of the light to make vitamin D before I get sunburned. <laughs> yes. Okay. So go on with the rest of your reasons after that. Yeah. Anything else you were going to say? Yes. Yeah, so for why there's really that large prevalence of vitamin mm-hmm. D deficiency, I think that was the original question. Um, Another reason is really just people aren't synthesizing enough of it. So there's decreased endogenous synthesis, as we'd say. And why does that happen? Well, for one, you may not have, uh, you know, people that are older have a decreased amount of cholesterol in their skin. So they may not have that cholesterol prevalence in their skin to produce the vitamin D3 that they need. They may have liver disease like cirrhosis. They may have fatty liver disease, which is, you know, common occurrence for people that have obesity. They also may have issues with their liver or their kidneys. So most of it is the synthesis form and the conversion. One after that is is increased hepatic metabolism. What does that mean? That means that your liver actually breaks down some of these metabolites. Although, yes, it converts, you know, D3 to 25-hydroxy vitamin D3, it will break down the active form of vitamin D3 when your body's done with it. But it breaks it down and doesn't know when your body's done with it or not. It just breaks it down if it's available. Mm. And there's certain medications that increase what what we know as our P450 enzymes. Um, that was actually my original p- first paper I ever published was on hepatic P450 enzymes. And there's certain medications, you know, I think you know these, you know, phenobarbital, carbamazepine, dexamethasone, those increase the production of those. And that actually leads to the active degradation of vitamin D. Um, so for people on those medications, definitely listen to your doctor and take your medications as prescribed. Um, but you may be interested in asking your doctor about, you know, your vitamin D, D levels, if it's something that you should be concerned about, or if you're showing any symptoms, or if it's something that they've mentioned before. So some of those medications cause a change in the metabolism. Um, two other last ones real fast. These are real short. Is One is end organ resistance. There's some people that just don't have vitamin D3 um, it's more of a hereditary form of it where they don't have the receptors for it. And so they, mm. they, they may have good circulating levels, but they're not going to get the, the exposure to it. And they're not going to get the, the physiological effect of D3, if that makes sense, or the, the active form of D3. Mm-hmm. And then another one is obesity. Um, obesity, obviously, is a, is a huge issue in the United States. Um, and there's some things that is obviously a concern with obesity and some things that I think we blow out of proportion with people that are overweight or obese. But one of them is that people that are overweight tend to have lower vitamin D level. Why is that? For the longest time, they, they theorized that it was because vitamin D is a fat-soluble vitamin, and so it was being absorbed in the adipose tissue and hanging out in there. We don't know if that's necessarily true anymore. Um, but there definitely is that association. And I don't think that, I think there's a lot of theories out there of why that is, but I don't think we have a really good answer yet of why uh, obese or overweight individuals tend to have lower vitamin D levels. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm so glad you addressed that because that was one of my questions, but I wrote down the fatty liver disease because obviously I forgot like since med school when I had to memorize like the whole mm-hmm. cascade of this and yeah, it's super complicated. But it totally makes sense that some people that are overweight or obese have increased body fat may also have fatty liver disease. And that may be another reason why they may have perpetually or just chronically low vitamin D levels is because that one part of the you know cascade isn't working well because of the liver. So, wow, that's like super, super fascinating. And there's just so many reasons why 
we can develop a deficiency of vitamin D. And remember with fatty liver disease, and you know this, um, listeners may not have known this. um, So I used to do some research on fatty liver disease. And it takes, it takes kind of like, you have to be almost to where you have full-blown fatty liver disease to see clinical effects of it. So there is subclinical effects of fatty liver disease that you may not know about that may be causing issues with vitamin D. You may have no other symptoms other than, you know, there may be an accumulation of fat in your liver that may be decreasing your vitamin D conversion. And that's something that your doctor won't know about. A CT scan may not even pick up. It's something that really only a biopsy and a pathology slide would pick up. And that's not something that patients do. That's not something that we we do because there's really no indication for it. And it's not going to necessarily have a clinical benefit, but it is something to think about that people that are overweight or obese may have that increased fat deposition in their liver that may be causing this decrease in their conversion. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you brought that up because it is kind of like high blood pressure. A lot of people are walking around with high blood pressure and have no clue because you don't really have any symptoms of it. But I also am very grateful and thankful that you also mentioned that there are some things about overweight or obesity, according to our BMI, you know, calculations that probably are a little bit overblown. So I don't want to scare people, especially since we're going to talk about in a little bit ways that we can increase either our intake or production of vitamin D. Um, But really it comes down to habits and behaviors, optimizing your nutrition, your sleep, your movement, your you know, your stress, all that lifestyle medicine stuff, and not to get overly stressed out about some of these things. Just do the best you can. Hey, humans. I know you want to eat healthier, but feel strapped for time. And even the thought of meal planning and cooking stresses you out. Well, have you considered trying a meal kit service? Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, delivering pre-portioned and prepped quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients. Green Chef sends organic, fresh produce, and chef-designed recipes in every box for satisfying, nourishing, and convenient meals that make it easy to stick to a healthy living routine. Find recipes for every lifestyle, including plant-based diets. Green Chef delivers quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients, including low added sugar and sodium smart options. You get to choose from 80-plus flavor-packed options that allow you to take back time in your kitchen with dinner ready in 30 minutes and lunch in 10. Try 15-plus new recipes every week. But here's the best part. Green Chef delivers everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Each meal kit includes pre-measured ingredients as well as some produce that comes already pre-chopped and custom sauces that are pre-made in-house. They also provide the recipe cards and the meals are really simple to make. It's a delicious, fresh, home-cooked meal without the hassle. What I love the most about Green Chef is that it takes the stress out of cooking. The recipes are easy to follow and everything you need is included so even the less experienced cooks in your house can make a delicious home-cooked meal. It's perfect for those seasons in your life that you're really busy with your kids' sports and school events. Hello, spring, and time is limited, especially if you want fresh, home-cooked, healthy meals to put on the table. So if you're feeling frustrated by the lack of time to eat healthy and you are ready to try Green Chef and see how easily you can integrate it into your healthy lifestyle, go to greenchef.com 
forward slash I am human five zero and use code I am human five zero to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use the code I am human five zero to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Equilibria is a woman-owned wellness brand with products intended to bring your mind and body back in harmony. They consider themselves a bi-women and four-women company, and they now offer a nutrient-dense green powder called Daily Nutri-Greens. Myself and my staff here at Nourish Wellness all tried the Daily Nutri-Greens, and we loved it. The Daily Nutri-Greens contain an immune antioxidant and detox blend, along with prebiotics, probiotics, and over 35 fruits and veggies. It also contains other important nutrients, such as B12, iron, zinc, and selenium. The daily greens are certified organic and all you have to do is mix it with water, but you can also easily add to your smoothies, your oatmeal, or your baked goods. The daily Nutri-Greens are vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. And another bonus is that the packaging is compostable. Yay! When I tried the apple banana daily Nutri-Greens, I was surprised by the pleasant and mild flavor. It was easy to prepare and drink and didn't leave any aftertaste. And I felt great afterwards. It's really easy to create a daily ritual around your green drink, integrated into your daily self-care routine. A green powder is one way to fill the gap in daily nutrition and is an easy and convenient way to get in your greens. These powders are a great way to add more nutrients into your diet during busy times, travel, and transitions in life when you don't have time or access to fresh green veggies. If you're interested in trying Equilibria's daily Nutri-Greens, head to myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, that's D-R-Y-A-M-I, for 15% off Equilibria's daily Nutri-Greens and much more. That's myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, D-R-Y-A-M-I, at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. Okay, so obviously there's probably like a ton of research, but maybe point out like some relevant research that on, in vitamin D that has helped inform us and direct us in where we need to go as far as like supplementation, but also correcting deficiencies. What is it that we know today that's going to be helpful for us? So here's it. I mean, to me, vitamin D research is just fascinating because a lot of the things that we learn in medical school and that most clinicians hold as fact don't necessarily always come to fruition, but we still follow them and we still believe them. So, like all medicine. <laughs> seriously. So I, one of the things that I loved about medical school, and I don't know if every school is this way and, you know, the general public may be concerned to hear this, but when I, when I started medical school, I started back in 2013. So I started a long time ago, um, relatively compared to most medical students. I, I learned that 50% of everything that you learn, um, is going to be out of date at some point, right? Or it may be wrong. We just don't know what 50% that is yet. Because as we learn more, we're going to find better ways to do things. We're going to find that we can improve our medications, improve our treatment protocols. And just because something is wrong, you know, five years down the road, it doesn't mean it's wrong for right now. It's just at the, with our level of evidence and our, our level of understanding, it's the best um, knowledge that we have. Mm-hmm. And so for me, vitamin D kind of really sits in the middle of that. In that in that right now, there's a lot of experts that are that would predict that the daily requirements for vitamin D may increase as much as 10 times in the upcoming years. 
Wow. So, so if you look at what they're recommending now, and we'll discuss this probably a little later on, like the actual values of what's recommended from, you know, from an RDA, like a, a recommended daily allowance, um, they're recommend, they're thinking that it may actually be 10 times higher in the upcoming years. Um, that still is kind of the jury's out on that, if that's going to happen, but there's been several, um, several of the experts that have started to predict that that's going to happen. And we have to think about why is this? And that's because a lot of the vitamin D research that we know about isn't clinically useful right now. It's not that the information that we know on the immune system is going to, you know, give a clinician any information that's going to help them treat something better or worse. It's just Mm -hmm. fascinating science of what vitamin D does to the human body. As long as the person's not deficient, then they're fine. But what is it doing in the body to me is just fascinating. And that's where clinicians don't necessarily know the ins and outs of what vitamin D does to the human body. But to me, it's just fascinating. Um, You know, in in medical school, we kind of learn the bare minimum of nutrition. And then after that, we use what we need to know for for patient care. But there's so much science that we don't necessarily need to know for patient care. But it does increase our ability to understand human physiology and improve treatments later on. Um, And I think one of the the best examples of that is vitamin D um, health and African American, mm-hmm. right? Historically, we know vitamin D is something that's crucial in bone formation and bone homeostasis, right? When you think vitamin D, you think, okay, it's to help you make strong bones with calcium. That's typically what we think about. But African Americans typically are always shown to have lower amounts of vitamin D, but they also have lower fracture risk. And they also have yeah. lower risk. So I was thinking oxy- while you were saying this, I was like, okay, where is he going with this? Exactly. It's, a, it's an oxymoron that you think about and you're like, wait a second. If they also have lower vitamin D, why is it that their fracture risk is lower? Why do they have lower rates of um, osteoporosis and osteomalacia? And the science, we, right now, we just don't know. We don't know why that is the case. So there's other things that vitamin D are, are really important for. And there's other factors in bone formation and, and fracture prevention that we, you know, as scientists and healthcare professionals, we just don't have the answer for. And everyone listening who's not in medicine, they may be thinking, oh, wow, you guys don't have the answer to that? Why don't, why don't you know? And I would say that that's, the, that's the, the benefit of it, because having the humility to say that we don't know just shows that we're, eventually we will know the answer because we're curious. We're, we're trying to learn. And it doesn't necessarily know, mean a bad thing, right? Our, our yeah. treatment protocols 10 years ago are, were way different than they are now. And, and that's okay. We're doing the best that we can with the information we have available. Wow. Yeah, that's so true. I feel like one of the things I've, one of the skills I've learned from being a doctor is humility. And I'm probably not the most humble of all, but I'm learning. But it is, it's hard because patients really do expect you to almost know everything. And so in order to admit, you know what, I don't know the answer, or currently this is what we're doing based upon knowing this, but Let's see what the evidence shows next year, what the recommendations are next year. So it is is important to inform the public that it is an evolving thing, you know, and like you said, part of the time we're even behind. (laughs) So we haven't caught up sometimes with the science. All right. So who should be tested for vitamin D deficiency? And is there a good consensus when it comes to what an adequate level is? Because I think that that's confusing too. Like, what does it mean to be like, what is the actual number that means that you're deficient or whether you have enough vitamin D? So these are great questions and definitely very, I would say more political questions than you would realize. 
and I say that because many experts recommend that everyone should get tested in vitamin D. Um, but in healthcare, you and I both know that that's just not feasible. It's not possible. And insurance plays a huge role on it. And so does, you know, the, the governing bodies like the USPSTF who give those recommendations on when to test for these type of things. Well, some experts say everyone should be tested. Um, insurance doesn't necessarily agree. And they think that there's only certain indications where people should be tested. Um, and USPSTF, which is the United States Preventative um, Screening Task Force, which gives recommendations about when to you know, screen for something or not, they are kind of indifferent on vitamin D, saying that there really is no good evidence for people to be screened um, unanimously for vitamin D deficiency. So what are some of those indications that um, we can all agree upon and that the insurance companies agree upon and also like the endocrine society, some of the ones that, you know, these diseases kind of revolve around. And those are things like osteoporosis, osteomalacia, obviously, chronic kidney disease, uh, liver disease, people that are on some of those medications long term, you know, some of the anti-seizure medications or glucocorticoids, uh, people that have malabsorption issues or inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, cystic fibrosis, um, people that have hyperparathyroidism or, or liver failure. Those are really kind of the, the core indications. And then there's some other ones like they always recommend um, Hispanic, African-Americans to always be tested periodically, pregnant, lactating women to be tested periodically. Although some women, you know, really just depends the society. Um, I, I don't think ACOG is recognized, which is the um, American Academy of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. I don't think, I don't know if they're recommending right now, but I know that um, the endocrine society is recommending um, indications for screening. Um, and then also obese uh, children and obese adults are also uh, given recommendations. So you asked the second part of the question was really where are these levels um, and where is a good indication of a deficiency versus maybe an insufficiency or maybe not enough. And this is something that is actually set um, that we talk about, but I think that healthcare providers all kind of have their own nuance and their mm -hmm. own understanding of what they think is too low or not or not high enough. Um, Deficiency in the U.S. Is, is listed as 20 nanograms per milliliter. Anything below that, you're considered vitamin D deficient. And that's on the 25-hydroxy um, vitamin D level. Um, we can talk about what the different ones that are tested, but typically it's just the 25-hydroxy vitamin D that is tested. Um, insufficiency, which means you may not have enough, you may consider supplement, but you probably aren't showing symptoms of deficiency, is typically between 21 and 29 nanograms per milliliter. And then what is technically termed uh, sufficient is 30 to 100. But I have, you know, I've worked with providers or I've heard providers say they want all their patients to be over 40, some say 45, some say they want them to be between 30 and 90 or 30 to 60. Um, you probably have just as, you've probably seen just as many um, variations of the thing, but any, typically they say over 30 is you're sufficient, you have enough. Okay. And, and then is there, you had mentioned earlier about high vitamin D, is there a number that's too high or like it could be cause problems? So this is the, this is the interesting part. And so things about toxicity, right? Vitamin D toxicity. They say from, if you're just eating food, you're just in the sun, you're never going to get vitamin D toxicity. Your body has a really good mechanism of trying to stay in the middle of most it's not going to produce too much. It's not going to absorb too much. So don't worry about supplementing too much 
uh, or eating too much in foods or just being in the sun too much and getting, you know, vitamin D toxicity. It's typically not the case. There are a handful of indications where people have taken too much vitamin D supplements, but then again, their levels um, in nanograms per milliliter typically are over 200. Okay. So they're, they're very high of that 25 hydroxy vitamin D. And that's typically in supplemental form of D3. And those people would be taking, you know, 100, 200,000 international units. Um, the, you know, it's a very high amount. The majority of the toxicity that we see with vitamin D is actually in the active form. And it's the active form of calcitriol or calcidiol. Um, patients or, you know, people that go to the store and they buy vitamin D supplements, they're not going to see calcitriol or calcidiol on the store, the active form of vitamin D. You can't buy that. But there are, in, there are people that have specific inherent diseases where they have to get injections of mm. calcidiol or calcitriol because they need the active form because their body can't produce the active form by itself. And that's typically where we see toxicity from you know, people that have been overdosed too high on those active forms. So for the average person, you don't have to worry about that because you're not getting the active form when you're taking a supplement or you're taking uh, just eating or you're just in the sun. So for most effects, for, for most people, it, you're really not going to see a toxicity as long as you follow the recommended amounts. And there hasn't been any evidence to show that supplementing more than the recommended amount has any benefit on, on anything. So it's more just to prevent deficiency, if that makes sense. Okay, great. All right. So under 20, deficient, 21 to 29, insufficient, 30 to 100, you should be good. But different experts might say they want a specific number in that range. And, right. you know, you said that these are set, but do we feel confident about it? I guess that was my question is, I feel like what happens is, yeah, we have these standards, but then I'll hear people say like, yeah, but, you know, I'm not really sure if that's what that really means, or if that's really important or, or this kind of thing. So I guess I want to know from you, the scientist, how confident do we feel about those ranges? So I, I feel confident in those ranges from the standpoint that in, in the majority of the research, maybe some of the fun research that we'll talk about later, if we have time for it, more the interesting research typically only looks at deficiency. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of issues that start to arise when you're deficient. But almost all of those deficiency levels are always looked at, you know, below 21. Uh, in this case, as long as you're over 30, you should be fine. I think there's different experts that will say you need to be higher. Again, I don't know if that's if that's going to be relevant. I don't know if we have the research to support it. Is there research papers that do, you know, show that you should be higher than 30? Yeah, there are a handful. Is there a good randomized control trial where we have, you know, or a meta-analysis done with multiple trials to confirm that data? Um, there isn't. So from that standpoint, I think it's really up to the individual and the provider to take the recommendation. But for me, if, if you're over 30, then I think you fall within the guidelines and that's where all the research fits. Okay, great. That was super helpful. All right. So let's start with what are the current recommended doses? to prevent vitamin D deficiency, just to prevent it, first of all? Mm-hmm. So this is where we, again, arise in differences, um, of course. right? The Endocrine Society um, has different recommendations than the, the Food and Nutrition Board. Um, the Food and Nutrition Board says all adults, I'm not, not going through the kids here, but just all adults should have you know, 600 international units and for people that are not in the U.S., and typically that's 15 micrograms, um, 
And then for people that are over 70 years old, that's 800 international units or 20 micrograms. And uh, lactating women um, typically, or, or pregnant women, are typically about the same, although most people are given 800 international units for the recommended uh, amount for the food and nutrition board. So for most adults, it's just 600 international units. Now, the Endocrine Society actually recommends that people between 19 and 70 should be closer to 1,500 to 2,000 international units per day. So it really is a big, you know, it's a significant jump. It's two and a half to three times the, the amount. Most people, when they supplement, they supplement that amount, and that's not counting what they get from their natural synthesis, from what they're getting from their food. So for, for all, um, you know, intensive purposes, really it's just what is your levels and, and do you need to supplement or not? And doctors have different recommendations when they do supplement. Most do, you know, a, a supplement of 400 to 2,000 international units per day. And then you will see doctors out there who do maybe like a bolus injection of like 50,000 international units or 100,000 international units, maybe every week or every month, just depending on where people's differences are. Um, but that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the what's the recommended uh, doses for vitamin D. Okay, so for adults, somewhere between 6,000 and 2,000 international units. And then for kids, what we recommend from the AAP is breastfed babies specifically because we know that vitamin D is naturally low in mammalian milk, 600 international units, so very similar to that lower dose for the adults. But then the children that are on formula, it's already fortified in the formula, so you don't have to worry about taking it until after they finish formula feeding. And then there's some debate about whether children after they're weaned should have it or not. But I said, I put it, I put my pediatric patients all on it because just what I do. So, okay. So we know what, well, I guess we have a ballpark range of what we should be taking to prevent vitamin D deficiency, but then there are some people that do become deficient. So are there any specific recommendations on once you get into that deficiency range, how you get back up to adequate levels, like how you supplement that, or does that differ based upon like what condition you have or those kinds of things? I don't know if it, I don't know if it differs based off of what condition, right? We talked about a lot of those conditions already, just typically they're ones that are chronic diseases or overall health or metabolic states or people that have conversion issues where they can't convert or synthesize vitamin D, people that are on certain medications or people that are on liver or people that have liver or kidney issues, those typically, you know, do supplement um, from an early on. But from from the you know the core of your question of really what um, is recommended, I, I find it's different based off of the provider. Mm-hmm. And some specialties have kind of their nuanced ways of recommending um, certain medications. I know some providers that I worked with up in the mountains that you know almost every single patient had vitamin D deficiency. What they were doing is if they, someone was below 20, they would give them a bolus of like 50,000 international units, and they would put them on a daily dose of one to 2,000 international units per day. Um, that's what I've seen done, but I know every every provider does it slightly different, and I don't know if I could say what I will do in the future as a provider. Yeah. Well, I'll just say personally, because I got my labs tested. I haven't had my vitamin D level tested, I don't think ever. But I did a few months ago and I was deficient, (laughs) which I'm not super surprised. But um, I was taking a thousand per day. So I increased up to 4,000 per day. And then I will test again another month or two. 
but yeah, I think when I talked to my provider, they were like, ah, you know, maybe do this. Or what do you think you should do? And I'm like, well, okay, I'm just going to try this and see what happens. But I think that the bolus makes more sense because what I've been seeing is that some people start supplementing and then it takes them forever to get up to adequate levels. So maybe we should be less fearful of toxicity and then just going for it, like really just getting that supplementation in and then finding a good you know, daily level to stay at that will prevent us from backsliding into deficiency. But yeah, I think it's a little confusing. Here's actually an interesting tidbit that I, I never learned in medical school. And I don't think people there, I don't think they're teaching this. Um, There may be listeners out there that are wondering, why would a bolus work better than just slowly increasing it? Okay, well, here's a really interesting fact is vitamin D actually regulates absorption of vitamin D in the gut. And it does this by increasing the differentiation of the enterocytes. Well, what are enterocytes? Enterocytes are the epithelial cells in the GI tract that line your your GI system that absorb these nutrients. Vitamin D regulates their maturation, basically like telling them to grow and how to grow and how to absorb things. So if you don't have vitamin D, you can't have proper maturation of these cells to tell them to, to absorb more vitamin D. So by giving them that bolus, Maybe kickstarting your body's ability to to produce the cells it needs to absorb more vitamin D from a supplement form. So that's actually something that I think in the, when you dig in the research, you start to find that, but it's not something that's common knowledge. So maybe that that bolus really does help, and it's it's because of that because you're you're teaching your body how to absorb it later on in in a supplement form. Wow, that's super fascinating, and that's very helpful actually, and it just makes a lot of sense to me. So, yeah, you're you are way too smart. You have way too much knowledge about this vitamin D, but that's why you're a guest today. So, thank you so much. Okay, you said earlier that you wanted to tell us a little bit more about how we can increase our absorption of vitamin D from. I think were we talking about sunlight at that point? It was. yeah. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that? So most of that actually was from the sunscreen. I think we t- okay. touched on it. Yeah, it was from just the sunscreen recommendation of not Perfect. putting it on 30 minutes or, you know, well before you leave the house, but putting on it right before. But also trying, if you're trying to prevent, um, you know, sunscreen or sun skin, skin damage from the sun, um, optimizing your time of the day really is, is best. And mm-hmm. obviously that's hard because most of us work or we have jobs where we're inside. But if you can take that, you know, a break or a walk in the, in the, you know, the late morning or the late afternoon, kind of in that blue hour or that, that uh, kind of that golden hour in the morning, Mm -hmm. that's actually a really good time because you may get less of the harmful UV rays, Mm -hmm. but you'll still get enough UVB to produce the vitamin D that your body needs. Okay, perfect. And how about when we take our vitamin D supplement? Because it is fat soluble, should we be eating it with something that has more fat in it, or what are the recommendations for that when we take our supplements? For vitamin D, I don't think I've seen specific recommendations for food or not. People take vitamin D in different forms, right? If you're taking it in a pill form, it probably is better to take it with food because it is fat soluble. There are specific vitamins like zinc and iron and all and all these other ones that have clear interactions with food and absorbability. Um, vitamin D isn't necessarily the case. It's just fat soluble. Now, mm-hmm. there are forms of vitamin D that come in gummies. Um, some kids take those. Some some people like the gummies. And some of the cubby gummies have enough. Um, some are mainly sugar, but some also have enough 
uh, uh, glycogen or have enough fat in them to help the absorption. So it really just depends on the form that you're taking it. Uh, but if you can take it with a meal before or after, then that should help you get that that amount of absorption that you need, assuming that you're taking enough for your deficiency level. Yeah. Okay, perfect. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit and mm-hmm. talk about COVID-19 and vitamin D because there's been a lot of talk about it. And then earlier you talked about how important vitamin D is for the immune system. So for COVID-19, COVID-19 is interesting. And I wrote two, uh, I wrote two really detailed um, blog posts on my blog and I'll, I'll send you the links that you can maybe yeah. put in the show notes. Perfect. And I say that because they're very long and I'm not going to go through all of it right now because I think it just is, is overkill. Um, first off, there really, there has not been any clear consensus of vitamin D with COVID-19. There have been a handful of studies that have looked at it. Um, and the, there's been, there was a quick review done by, I can't remember which group, but it was one of the national academies who did a quick review over the first five studies and really made the indication that there's really, there's no strong evidence to support vitamin D supplementation for COVID-19. That being said, there are a lot of mechanisms that are proposed that could, you know, tell us, could vitamin D be, be important for COVID-19? Or across the board, when you look at all the research, if you have a vitamin D deficiency, then you should have that corrected, regardless of COVID-19 or not. And there's a lot of reasons why being deficient already could increase your risk of having severe COVID-19 symptoms. Um, and so for anyone that is deficient, they should be supplementing with their doctors, you know, to try to get back in their normal range of, of vitamin D. Um, with that being said, there's also several groups, and I think the um, Harvard School of Public Health and, and several of the other groups have come out and blatantly said, because of the, the quarantine protocols and because people have been self-isolating indoors, um, they're not getting the same amount of vitamin D as they usually get because most of them aren't going outdoors enough. And so there has been clear indications where people are just saying everyone who's staying indoors more than usual should consider vitamin D supplementation. Um, most of them say, is it worth you know checking your levels before start supplementing because of the pandemic? Um, that's where you get people that say different things. But I think the overall consensus has just been that if it's unsafe to go to your doctor to get vitamin D tested because your your doctor is maybe in an area where there may be going to the doctor to be tested, um, but you had increased risk of being of getting coronavirus, then they recommending just supplementing the the low amount um, between four hundred and two thousand international units because there's it's presumed that there's no harm and that that comes straight from the um, Harvard School of Public Health. Um, so that's kind of where kind of just the the overview. Now I can talk about a whole slew of interesting information about why vitamin D is important for coronavirus, um, but I don't think we have the, the clinical data to support supplementation for the treatment or for the prevention. I, I don't think we we really have that data. Um, I could talk all day about the science and the theoretical aspect of why it should be really important, um, but I actually would just probably send everyone straight to the, the two posts I wrote on it because. Um, I will, I will say this from the aspect of looking, when you're looking at a treatment or a preventive uh, supplement or a medication for you know, a disease like COVID-19, you have to break it down. You can't just say, is this medication or is a supplement good for this disease? You have to think about the disease process. Is it good for the prevention? 
Does it prevent infection? Does it slow the virus's ability to replicate? Does it affect the immune system, your body's ability to fight it off? Will it prevent your body from, you know, going from mild symptoms to severe symptoms? In the, one of the blog articles that I did, I kind of broke it down into those steps and looked at where vitamin D may play a role in all of those. Um, most of it's still theoretical, right? I can talk about the theory of the immune system all day um, and what vitamin D may do, but we don't have the data to support that it's going to do anything for COVID-19 right now. If you read my blog article, you may think the otherwise. You may think, oh my God, I need to supplement with vitamin D right now. Um, But all the science is there for anyone that's really interested. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a super good point though, in that just as you said at the beginning of the talk, we can get super reductionistic when it comes to research. And when people ask me, well, is this healthy or or is this good for me? you're not really asking a specific enough question sometimes because when they do studies, they're looking super duper duper specific. So it may not necessarily apply to what you're thinking. But the bottom line is basically, if you are deficient, there is enough reasons to get back up to sufficiency. Maybe it will help you decrease the risk of getting or getting severe COVID maybe, but at the, at the very least, Let's get back to sufficiency. And if you're in an area that's safe, maybe you can consider asking your doctor to test if you're curious. But if not, just go ahead and start supplementing. So I think that's, you know, safe enough, especially at the levels that we talked about. And I do want to say one thing that I think is really interesting is that don't believe everything you read online. Because and and I say that because even I mean, there's been a slew of information about vitamin D and vitamin C and zinc and selenium about how they could, you know, prevent COVID-19. And none of them are going to prevent you from getting coronavirus. Wearing a mask and washing your hands and staying away from people that have it is going to prevent you from getting it. Um, So there's a lot of information out there on the internet that's going to try to convince you otherwise. Um, From the time that we're recording this, I've tried to read all of the vitamin D literature on coronavirus. And even I can be misled because there was, for example, there was a paper that came out of Indonesia, um, I think back in June, that clearly showed that, you know, certain levels of vitamin D supplementation was given to patients and it prevented uh, uh, patients from even getting coronavirus and it prevented them from developing ARDS for the ones that had gotten infected. And everyone is really convinced by this, but it was a preprint. It wasn't a peer-reviewed journal. It was a preprint from Indonesia with a large amount of patients. And another group went and tried to research, try to figure out who these clinicians were and, and what were this research. A, they couldn't find evidence of any of the, of the people that were listed on the paper. They couldn't find, they even called the hospital that was listed as the hospital where these patients were, and the hospital had no indication that those people even worked there. These people have never published in a single medical article in their life, but because it's a preprint, they can technically publish it on preprinted, meaning it's not peer-reviewed. It's just, it appears, it looks like a scientific journal, but it doesn't pass any of the checks and balances. So it's really easy to get misled and you really have to kind of dig and do the research. So although you may be skeptical of what I'm saying, when I say that there's no convincing research that it's going to you know, prevent or treat right now, by just making sure you're not deficient, you will be fine. But it's very easy to get misled on the internet these days. Wow. So it was a completely made up study? Oh, yes. It, yeah. like? it was completely made up. And these even now papers written about that paper about like all the ins and outs about why it was fake. And it, it, 
it's really interesting like if you look at just like the theory of scientific publications and how this could have happened but you could see how when you go on the internet or you go to look up things how news media can be misled because that paper that preprint alone i think it it garnered like 3.7 million um uh what is it uh downloads or views or something. yeah yeah views or downloads i think it was engagements or, or something which is just like shocking but at the same time you you have to be very skeptical and, and think of everything from a grain of salt like is there truth to this and why is there truth to this and are we seeing this in other places and does this fit the, the total body of evidence um, that we're seeing you have to answer those questions because those are the hard questions that scientists um, medical professionals and now the public has to be able to answer before they believe something yes and I will add to it too, is, you know, take everything with a grain of salt because everybody now is an expert online, um, all the influencers, and they have lots of opinions and it can really mislead a lot of people too. So be careful where you get your information from. Wow. That's just crazy that that happened. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up. This has been really great. But one thing I would love to know from you is what do you wish more people knew? I think people just, I wish people understood the, what scientific literature is. Um, science is an evolving process. We know more today than we did yesterday, but that really is only the case if you read. Nobody knows everything, and tomorrow we may find out something new that totally changes a specific area in science, but that's not typically the case. The majority of the time, things are incremental. Mm-hmm. And so I think people would, you know, read articles when they, when they find, and they see a headline that has anything to do with science that they would take it with a grain of salt and say, why is that true? Is that true? Is there enough evidence to support that claim? Because a lot of times they will make claims that are typically just a little outlandish um, for most research. Um, But science to me is just a beautiful process and the fact that it's evolving. So I just wish people understood that someone's opinion who has been a scientist who's working in scientists does carry a little bit more weight than someone who hasn't published papers before. But in the end, it really comes down to the total volume of evidence and what do all the papers and what do all the experts say, not just what a single individual says. And if anyone tries to convince you that they know everything or that they know more than the general public or they know more than all the experts in the field, probably means they're probably lying to you or they're probably trying to convince you of something that is going to be financially motivated or something, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're just very uh, talented in the art of BS, maybe. (laughs) So so, so we were talking about that humility thing earlier is that we can't, I mean, I learned to never say never because as soon as I say something like that, it like literally bites me in the butt, like the next day. (laughs) So it's a hard lesson to learn. Okay. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? I think it's really just like curiosity of openness to learn. Right. And I, I've done a fair amount of things where I've, you know, tried to been very habitual in, in creating patterns or, or I would say consistency in my life, whether it's running or exercise or eating properly. Um, for example, like right now I'm on day 980 something of running every single day. And to me, that's something that's a personal habit that people could really be proud of. But to me, that, that, that falls so small in just the idea of curiosity and open, openness to learn. So many people just close their mind to new possibilities. And I would say having that, that ability to remain curious and ask questions and to learn new things, I think is the, is the one thing that everyone can benefit from. 
Oh, that's so inspirational and very beneficial for you because you are a scientist. So I'm glad that you have that. Okay. Where can listeners connect with you? So probably the best place to connect with me probably is Instagram. That's probably where I spend the majority of my time. I haven't been posting that much uh, the past two months, but I'm going to be start posting again here a lot. I just had a newborn. Um, so we, I took some time off and I'm really enjoying some family time, but I'll be posting again shortly. But if people have questions, they can always shoot me a DM. I try to get back to them as fast as possible. Um, if it's a really long or complicated one, um, I normally am not, but on Instagram, I'm just dr.cusimano. So dr.cusimano. That's probably the best place to find me. Congratulations on your baby. So exciting. Thank you. Thank you. And then go ahead and leave us with one call to action. What one thing can we do to improve our lives? I would say everyone needs to learn to test what works for them. And there's a lot of diatribes out there for different diets. And I mean, for for example, I have been plant-based for over 10 years. And for me, I still don't recommend that for everyone. I recommend everyone test, figure out what works best for them. Some things aren't sustainable for some people, and you need to find what's sustainable for you under the supervision of your doctor. So my one, I think, call to action is be comfortable with experimenting on yourself under the supervision of a doctor. Because I think that finding what works for you, creating lifestyle change is way more impactful than just making a dietary dietary change if you're looking for health, um, longevity, and just living a, a long and prosperous life. Yeah, no, especially I love that word sustainable, because if if you're not being consistent with whatever you choose, it may not benefit you anyway. So find something that you can make incremental improvements that actually makes you feel better. Like you said, that longevity and joy, joy is so important. Well, thank you so much, Frank. I really appreciate this. You have been a wealth of knowledge and helped clarify a lot of the questions I had. And I know this is going to be really helpful. I appreciate your time and I hope that you have a very plantastic day. Thank you so much. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.